Let's go to Jonah chapter number four. This is our final installment of Jonah. And I'm going to miss this guy. It's been fun to walk through this passage of Scripture and to understand a little bit more about who Jonah is. While you're turning there, I do want to find uh, Walt Livingston this morning. Uh, Walt, where, raise your hand. Let me see where you're at. Is he not here, Tina? His sister's saying he's not here. Well, Walt's going to join the church next week then, and you'll get, to, you'll get to see him raise his hand then. So Jonah chapter number 4, we're going to uh, read verses 5 through 11. If you remember the storyline, Jonah has gone to Nineveh. He's given them the word of the Lord. They have responded in repentance and faith. God has decided to turn back judgment and to give them mercy and grace. And he's slow to anger and he has great kindness. And Jonah, at the beginning of chapter number four, is mad at God. We looked at this last week. He's mad. He's angry. He protests that God is so gracious and so merciful. And God, you're slow to anger. And eh, I'm mad at you because of that. So he protests God. And God gives Jonah a question after Jonah is suicidal. And he tries to invoke this divine euthanasia. You know, God, kill me. God asks Jonah, Jonah, you do well to be angry. Are you okay to be angry about this man? And we left off there, and so we're going to pick it up in verse number 5, where the Bible says this. So Jonah went out of the city, and he sat on the east side of the city, and there made him a booth, and sat under it in the shadow till he might see what would become of the city. And the Lord God prepared a gourd and made it to come up over Jonah, that it might be a shadow over his head to deliver him from his grief. So Jonah was exceeding glad of the gourd. But God prepared a worm when the morning rose the next day, and it smote the gourd, and it withered. And when it came to pass, when the sun did arise, that God prepared a vehement east wind, and the sun beat upon the head of Jonah that he fainted and wished himself to die. And he said, It's better for me to die than to live. And God said to Jonah, Doest thou well to be angry for the gourd? And Jonah said, I do well to be angry, even unto death. Then said the Lord, Thou hast had pity on the gourd, for which thou hast not labored, neither madest to grow, which came up in a night and perished in a night. And should not I spare Nineveh, that great city wherein are more than six score thousand persons that cannot discern between their right hand and their left, and also much cattle? The end. God ends the book on a question. It's an unusual way to end a book, but he just ends it there. I'm just going to give you a question and drop the mic and walk away. And we're going to see today really the heart of the Lord. And this whole book has been moving towards and driving towards this section of Scripture, and especially the last two verses, where we get to understand what is the heart of God. And we get to see it in light of Jonah, who doesn't get this. And Jonah, who is oftentimes us, and really this open-ended question at the end of the book is designed to, for you to insert yourself and for you to understand that sometimes you're Jonah and this question poses a threat to you just as much as it did to this man. So this passage here, there's so much to draw from. There's so many applications, but I want to boil it down to three for us this morning. And really the third one is our primary one that the whole book has been marching towards to make this application to our hearts and our lives but I want you to see several things that to me just kind of lift off the page and become pronounced as I read through the end of Jonah, chapter number four. First, I see this. I see control. When you read the, the first part of this, especially in verse number five through eight, you see 
control happening here. And I want to read them together again with you. And there's a specific word prepared that if you're not careful, you can miss. The Bible says Jonah went out of the city and he sat on the east side of the city. And there he made him a booth and he sat under it in the shadow till he might see what would become of the city. And the Lord God prepared a gourd. And made it to come up over Jonah that it might be a shadow over his head to deliver him from his grief. So Jonah was exceeding glad of the gourd. But God prepared a worm when the morning rose the next day and it smote the gourd and it withered. And it came to pass when the sun did arise that God prepared a vehement east wind. You see all through this that Jonah is acting the fool and Jonah is doing his own thing. But God is still in control and God is still preparing and God is still shaping and he is still involved in this situation. And here's Jonah who gets this question. Jonah, are you okay to be angry? Yeah, I'm okay to be angry, God. And he decides, I'm going to walk outside the city. And I'm going to sit on the east side of the city. And I'm going to just sit here and wait and twiddle my thumbs and see what happens. Jonah is a man, if you've ever been maybe in a parking lot or on a hillside somewhere around Pittsburgh waiting for 4th of July fireworks to go off, maybe in Tarentum or somewhere else, that you're just sitting there waiting for the fireworks to go off, this is Jonah. Jonah is a man sitting there hoping fireworks go off in Nineveh, you just rain down fire on them, and I'm just going to sit here and just hope that shock and awe happens and I get a front row seat to this. And the Bible says several things that are interesting to me. It says that he sits on the east side of the city. I read that and I literally thought to myself, who cares what side of the city he sits on? Like Jonah sits on the east side of the city. It seemed like a strange thing to include to me. And he sits under this booth. You know, I, I think it's there for a reason. I'm, I'm, I'm pushing it a little bit here and I can't say this for certain, but Jonah sits on the east side of the city, meaning he's looking at Nineveh and he's facing westward which means that he's facing the homeland, he's facing Jerusalem. This is kind of the mode of prayer. This is what happened earlier in Jonah 2, that Jonah was in the deep and he called out to God. And the Bible says that Jonah told God, I'm going to try from the waters, I'm going to try to lift my eyes towards your holy temple. This was instruction that Solomon had given when hard times came to the children of Israel or they were in a foreign land. They were to turn their eyes toward Jerusalem and they were to pray that way. This is why Daniel, Daniel prays three times a day and he gets in some quote-unquote trouble for that, but he prayed three times a day facing westward toward Jerusalem is how Daniel prayed because that was biblical instruction. I think that Jonah is setting himself up to pray potentially pray this way. He also puts himself under a booth. Now this booth is related to the word that the Israelites used for the Feast of the Tabernacles. You can see this spelled out in Leviticus 23 that the Feast of the Tabernacles was a week-long feast that they would enjoy and it was meant for them to reminisce where God had brought them from and what God had done for them. So they would make these tabernacles or booths is what the Bible calls them. And they would live out of their homes. They would go live in booths for a week. Now, God told the children of Israel, you're going to do this forever. And they still do this to this day. This will actually happen while we're in missions conference. October 4th through 11th is the seven-day week-long Feast of Tabernacles this year that they will go live in booths for a week. And the irony here is that Jonah is a man who's sitting on the east side of the city, setting himself up for prayer under a booth that's meant to symbolize God's providence and God's wondrous blessings and covenant with Israel. This is Jonah, setting myself up for prayer under the booth that's meant to symbolize God's providence and blessings, but all the while his heart is cantankerous and he's angry at God. Do you see the irony there? You see how crazy that is that this man is in this state 
that here he is waiting for God to rain down terror on these people and just hoping that this happens. So here Jonah sits, but he's about to discover once again something about God, that God's in control. And the Bible says that God prepares a gourd. That's a Hebrew word. We really don't know how to translate that. Gourd's our best guess, but some sort of plant. He prepares a plant, he prepares a worm, he prepares a wind, similar to in chapter 2 where God prepared a storm, God prepared a fish. All the while, Jonah's learning over and over and over again that God is in control of this situation, that all of this is under God's providence. J. Vernon McGee used to say about God that this is his universe and God does things his way. You may think you have a better way, but you don't have a universe. This is God. He's in control. And and Jonah is trying to exhibit this and give us kind of this this underlying theme of this book that the Lord is sovereign and in control, that God's not a deist. Deism is the idea that God made the world and now he steps back and he just lets it run on its own and he's not involved in the day-to-day. God doesn't insert himself into our lives. God doesn't come into your situation. He's just hands off. The wheels are in motion. That's happening. Deism is a biblical absurdity. God inserts himself in Jonah's day-to-day. God will insert himself in your or my day-to-day. He wants to be involved in the nitty-gritty of your life. He wants you to put your care upon him. He wants to be involved there. And more than he wants to be involved, he is involved. And more than he's involved, he's actually in control. This is what Daniel says. Daniel tells Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 4 that Nebuchadnezzar, God's going to humble you if you don't humble yourself. And he's going to make you crazy and he's going to do A, B, and C. And he's going to do this for one reason. He's going to do this so that you will know that God rules in the kingdom of men and he gives it to whomsoever he will. Daniel says, Nebuchadnezzar, you're going to learn that God's in control, that you're not on the throne. He's on the throne. And if you don't understand this now, he will make it so that you do understand this. This is what Jesus tells Pilate. One of my favorite dialogues through the the Passion Day there is this dialogue that actually happens between Jesus and Pilate. And Jesus doesn't talk to Pilate much when Pilate talks to him. But there is a moment where Pilate tells Jesus, and I'll quote it verbatim, he says, speakest thou not unto me? He tells Jesus, look, you're not going to talk to me. Knowest thou not that I have power to crucify thee and have power to release thee? Jesus, you're not going to talk to me? Don't you know I have the power to kill you? I have the power to set you free? And Jesus talks back. And this is what he says to him. Thou couldest have no power at all against me except it were given thee from above. Jesus says, Pilate, you think you're in control? You think that you're the the big guy here? You think that you can control the situation? No. The power that you have is from the hand of God. God is in control of the situation. And Jonah learns what many people in Scripture had to learn the hard way, what we should learn. That God knows what he's doing, and he's doing it. He's preparing a boat, he's preparing the fish, he's preparing the storm, he's preparing the gourd, the the worm, the wind, all of it. God is in control of this, and Jonah is beginning once again to discover this. Secondly, I see this. Not just control, you see contempt. And we've already seen this in Jonah, but you see it most pronounced now. 
The Bible says that God prepares all this and he prepares this vehement east wind and the sun in verse number eight beat upon the head of Jonah. Some of you were out at the golf outing yesterday. We had a rare day. It was clear skies and 80 something degrees and the sun beat upon our heads like it normally does not in Pittsburgh. But this is different. This is, this is modern day Iraq. This is very hot, dry, arid country. This is not 80 degrees. This is likely 100, 110, maybe 115. So the sun is beating upon Jonah's head, and Jonah fainted. And he wished in himself to die. And he said, it's better for me to die than to live. And God said to Jonah, doest thou well to be angry for the gourd? And he said, I do well to be angry, even unto death. Sadly, we still have yet to explore all the contours of Jonah's sullen and depressed and depraved little heart. You'd think we would have discovered it all by now because this man is so erratic and so crazy at points in time. But we have yet to discover fully what's in his heart. And God says, Jonah, are you okay to do this? Jonah woke up one morning and he felt like maybe he slept in because it was a little hotter than it was the day before. Now there's not shade over his head. Now the sun's beating down. Now the wind is coming and the gourd that he was exceeding glad of now is gone. Now I do feel for Jonah slightly here because if you have ever felt really hot weather in a really strong wind, you know that's not pleasing. My wife grew up in Northern California for really her whole life, and I lived there for five years. And summers in Northern California, we were very landlocked, not close to the ocean, not breezy, not good weather all the time. No, summers were no rain all summer long, which is why wildfires go nuts in California. And it was oftentimes, it was always over 100 during the summer, but oftentimes 110, 112, 114. I mean, just hot, miserable. When I lived out there, I'd picked up a, a second vehicle. I bought this old beat-up pickup truck for $1,000, and I named him Clifford. Clifford was, it was a good name, by the way. Clifford was a 1990 Dodge three-quarter ton. He had faded blue and silver paint. For a 1990, it was pretty good because he had power windows. He had cruise control, but he had dents all over him. The headliner was missing. The speedometer had been stuck on 115,000 miles for long before I got it. I know that much. He burned through oil like crazy. And the worst part about Clifford is that the AC that once worked in him no longer worked. And there were days during the summer where it's 110 or 112 or 115 degrees. And I would drive down the 99 at 70 miles an hour and I would roll down my window to try to get a reprieve from the heat that was just so surrounding. And I mean to tell you, when it's that hot and the wind blows that fast, it is not refreshing. It's the opposite of refreshing. It feels like you're living in a blow dryer. It literally, if you've never experienced that, just go somewhere and try to experience it. It is frustrating. What should, you know, I should have a breeze in my face and I should get a reprieve. It is not a reprieve. It wears you out because it's so hot and that wind is blowing so fast. And here's Jonah suffering under these conditions purposely by the hand of the Lord. And he is going to faint, the Bible says. Like he's about to have a heat stroke. And Jonah cries out and says, it's better for me to die. Jonah turns his anger, he turns his frustration, he turns his contempt really upon himself, and he becomes full of this 
sulky despair. Jonah's a man who turns really back to God and he tries to breathe fire at God. He's uncomfortable in these circumstances and rather than giving up my anger and rather than giving up my frustration, I'm just going to rest in them. I'm going to let it become deep-rooted and my anger is really going to handicap me from seeing the absurdity of my feelings. It's going to prevent Jonah from seeing the absurdity of what he's actually asking God to do and there he is. And God responds with another question. Jonah, you okay to be angry for that gourd? And Jonah says, yeah, I am. I'm fine. I'm, I'm good to be angry. I'm good to be angry even unto death. And I sit here and, and, and I look at this man and I think that we learn a very valuable lesson from him. Like it's apparently possible to be God's child and to watch, have a front row seat to the blessings of God. I'm God's child. I have a front row seat to his mercy and his grace and him doing wonderful things in the city of Nineveh, but all the while to have a bad attitude and contempt and be mad at God because of it. Like, it's legitimately possible for you to come to missions conference two weeks from now, and it'll be, it'll be awesome. We'll end the conference. It'll be a special day for all of us. I promise you that. But it's possible for you to sit here and to watch us love people that need love and honor people who should be honored, and for all of us to come together and begin to invest so that once again this year our church can just give away hundreds of thousands of dollars. It's possible for you to watch that unfold and to sit here with a bad attitude because of it. Well, I think that they should give that money to me. I think they should give that money to somebody else. It's possible for you to see people be saved and to see people be baptized and to see people join the church consistently and to watch God work and to see his mercy and his grace on display and not be okay with it. And that does boggle my mind, but you learn from Jonah that's possible. It's possible to be God's child, see his blessings, and yet have a bad attitude about it all. And this is Jonah. He's a man who geographically, right outside Nineveh, chronologically, 8th century B.C., spiritually, right back to square one. A man who obeyed, kind of, begrudgingly, but has yet to understand the heart of God, has yet to really get what his heart should be attached to. Jonah is like the prodigal's brother. Remember the prodigal son in Luke 15? And we know it from the, the, prodigal, the prodigal standpoint where he goes away and he comes home and welcome in and grace and love and put a new coat on you and all the rest of it. But what's the end of that story unfold? It unfolds the older brother. You know, the good brother. The Christian brother. The one who did it all right. Goody two-shoes. That brother who came home and saw that there was a feast happening. And I'll read it to you verbatim from Luke 15. They said unto the older brother, Thy brother is come. And thy father hath killed the fatted calf because he hath received him safe and sound. Look, we're having a party for him. This is awesome. We're celebrating. The rebel's back. He's, he's turned back to God. And what did the older brother do? He was angry and he would not go in. I don't like that. I don't like that we're celebrating them. We should celebrate me. I don't like that he's come back and now we have all this joy and this jubilation that he repented and dad's going to be merciful and gracious and slow to anger and I'm, I'm angry. I'm going to protest. I ain't going in that party. That's Jonah. That's the prodigal's brother. That's, frankly, it's you and me sometimes where we begin to protest the goodness and the mercy of God. That he's good and he's gracious and he's slow to anger and he has great kindness. And if we're not careful, we become 
angry at that. How is that possible? How is that possible to have a front row seat to God working and yet have a bad attitude about it all? I think it's possible because you forget what God's done for you. Inevitably contained in the heart of Jonah is a man who says, I'll, I'll take the grace and mercy of God. Yeah, I'll take, save me, great, salvations of the Lord, chapter 2. Oh, yeah, I'll take the gourd over my head. Thanks, God, I appreciate that. I'll take all that, but don't give it to them. Inevitably contained in Jonah is, well, I'm not that bad. Yeah, I, I did wrong and God saved me, and I did wrong and I, God was merciful and gracious to me, but these people, I mean, they're despicable. Like, they're on a whole different level. They ain't like me. I mean, Judah, yeah, we'll take the mercy and grace of God. Jerusalem, we'll take it. Israel, we'll take it. But Nineveh, no, they shouldn't get it. Inevitably contained in the heart of Jonah and his contempt is this thought process that he, he neglects to understand that God has been so good to him. And this shouldn't surprise us because Jesus tells us this. What does Jesus tell Simon the Pharisee? He tells Simon the Pharisee, to whom little is forgiven, they'll love little. But to whom much is forgiven, they'll love much. Jonah is a man in everybody that sees that I've been forgiven little, so I've got to love little. I, I don't have to love like God does. I don't have to care for these people like the Lord does. So here he is, full of contempt, thinking more highly of himself than he should. A man who recognized the sovereignty of God in chapter 2, kind of saluted it. But really, Jonah believes in the sovereignty of Jonah. Jonah believes that he should be in control, that it should go his way. Really, he doesn't say these words, but you could see in the man this, it's not fair. Why is this happening? Why, God, why did you give me this mission? Why did you select me to do this? Why me? That's Jonah's heart, really. Why me, God? I would encourage you, because you've, if you've been around any length of time, you've been there. You've had why me, God moments, Right? I would encourage you to insert an extra word there. Instead of asking why me, ask why not me. Why not you? Like what, what did you do to deserve not getting sick? What did you do to deserve financial freedom and financial and marital bliss my whole life? Why not you? What, what is it contained inside of you? What have you done that, that should make your life trial-free? That should make your life where it's a bed of roses all the time and I never have any struggles and God never asks me to do anything that's outside of my comfort zone? You know what the answer is? There isn't one. The only answer you can come up with is, well, why not me? Well, because... I was a sinner and Jesus died for me on the cross and actually gave his life and shed his blood for me. So that's why I should not have to go through that. Yeah, bad answer. It don't work. You don't, you don't deserve anything really. There's no merit that you've earned. It's grace. It's mercy. It's God's favor that he gives to you. And Jonah has the wrong heart. Jonah, he, he is struggling to see where he should be. And God's going to do his dead level best to come at him one more time and to help Jonah see, Jonah, here's your heart and here's my heart and they need to be reconciled. So God comes to Jonah in verse number 10. The book ends on a question. Then said the Lord, thou hast had pity on the gourd 
for which thou hast not labored, neither madest it grow, which came up in a night and perished in a night, this little plant that you had nothing to do with, Jonah. Should not I spare Nineveh, that great city wherein are more than six score thousand persons that can't discern between their right hand and their left, and also much cattle? Can I go home now? Like, I thought about just reading that and just walking off and just like letting you guys <laughs> wrestle with that yourself. It's, it's a strange, but it's a really neat way to end the book because it makes you insert yourself and answer the question for yourself. And here's what's happening. The stars are now aligning so that Jonah can really see his own heart and the heart of God. The stars are now aligning so that Jonah can truly start to love his enemies now. Jonah is a man who obeyed a little bit. <laughs> and he gave Nineveh a measure of truth, but he's far, far, far from loving his enemies. And here, here's a truth for you to sink your teeth into. Truth and love, they are never in conflict. They're always in concert. See, when you, when you have truth but no love, it's condemnation. That's what Jonah has, condemnation for these people. But when you have truth and love, you have compassion. And that's God saying, I want you to go give them my truth, but I love them. So I have compassion for them. This is working together, Jonah. But Jonah, you don't. You gave them a, a few of my words, and now you just want to go condemn them and see what happens to them. There's, there is no love in this man. Obviously, there is in the heart of God, because the compassionate heart of God is for the redemption of the world. But there's not in Jonah. And here is God asking this question that's a powerful powerful question. Jonah, you have pity on? You're concerned about the plant? The plant that you had nothing to do with? You didn't make it grow? You didn't make it die? You had nothing to do with that? And you're mad at me for being concerned about Nineveh? And oh yeah, Jonah, by the way, there are 120,000 people who can't discern between their right hand and their left. That could mean that they're just morally undiscerning, that they're kind of morally reprobate. I think it likely means that they're, they're little kids. They literally don't know right from left. Like, Jonah, you're mad at me for having compassion on this city, and by the way, there's 120,000 little kids and a lot of cattle in there? Think about that, Jonah. You want me to judge them, to kill them? Little kids are going to die? All the livestock's going to die? Jonah, is it okay for you to be concerned about this, but then it's not okay for me to be concerned about this? That's the question from God to Jonah. Jonah, your concerns don't reflect my concerns. And there's this inevitable conclusion that that's a problem, that that needs to change. Jonah, you know what I'm concerned about? Broken and lost people. I want to reach them. What are you concerned about? Gord. Me. I'm hot. A long way from home. Mark, I'm concerned about broken and lost people. What are you concerned about? Well, they installed my lawn. It's frustrating because they put like way more weeds with that grass seed than they should have. And like the green of the grass, it's like a yellowy green. It's like, it's not a deep green. Like I'm, I'm really, it ticks me off because it should be like this deep, you know, rich, you know what I'm talking about, like a rich green, but it's, it's like, a, it's just not greeny enough, right? You, 
I'm concerned about this generation of people. What are you concerned about? I'm concerned about your coworker. I'm concerned about your neighbor. I'm concerned about that loved one who's lost. I'm concerned about your mother-in-law even. And I know you are too, but in different ways. But God's, con- right? God's concerned about concerned about single moms. I'm concerned about this generation of teenagers. I'm concerned about Natrona Heights and Pittsburgh and Saxonburg and Sarver. And I'm concerned about people getting the gospel. What are you concerned about? Well, my kid only got 23 minutes of playing time in the game. And coach, no, they're way better than that. They should at least got 25 minutes of playing time. Like, I'm going to go give that coach a piece of my mind. Really? Teens. I'm concerned about your friends. Concerned about that person on your sports team. What are you concerned about? Well, a new iPhone came out. And I'm like, I want to go sit in line. And I'm going to take my perfectly good iPhone. I'm going to play on it while I'm in line to go buy the new iPhone. And I want to trade that one in and get the new one. But I need like $300. I can't come up with it. You see that we're Jonah? You see that oftentimes the heart of God, concern for people. I know we do missions conference annually, but missions conference should be like every single week. That God's concerned about the world. He's concerned about people. He wants to reach them. What are we concerned about? Now, to be fair, I am, and you are, in the presence of a lot of people in this room, or people that were in the the first service, that do get this. I want to be fair with that. There are people I know here in this room, church members of Harvest Baptist Church, that get the heart of God. That's the reason why the bills are paid. (laughs) That's the reason why we have this facility. That's the reason why our children can be ministered unto right now as we're sitting in this service. That's the reason why all that you see around you exists because people have understood that my Christianity isn't all about me. And many of you give your time and your money and your talents and you teach and you serve and you mentor and you train and you do your best to invest in the mission of God And there are a lot of you that get this, that God's concerned about people, so I'm not going to be self-serving. I'm going to be concerned about people as well. And so you take your time and your skill and your resources and you use them to intersect with the kingdom of God. You use them to intersect with the mission of God and you do your best to, to, to make a difference. And it does make a difference. It makes an impact. It does something for our world. It does something for our missionaries. It does something for Natrona Heights right here. And this is why this campus is here. This is why we'll be able to give away hundreds of thousands of dollars this year because many of you get this. And every once in a while, a group of people in a church get together and they don't send the sin of Jonah. They don't make their religion all about me where I now get to die and go to heaven, check, and I, God, could you give me the promotion at work, please? And God, could you please help me to get to the front of the line after church today? I really would not like to wait too long for my lunch. And God, could you give little Johnny the good seat prize? I want him to win that. And could you bless me and bless me, help me, bless me, help me, bless me, help me? Every once in a while, there's a group of people that understand that's not how religion, that's not how Christianity, that's not how church is supposed to be done. And many of you have gone beyond that. Many of you have, and I thank you for that, but not all of you, not all of you have. There are many of you that need to understand what the heart of God is, and your heart needs to connect to that. 
And to be fair, I know you're good. Okay? I know you're good. I know you're moral. You try to live a good life. I know you're even grateful. You're grateful that someone has given money to make this possible. You're grateful that someone shared the gospel with you. You're grateful that your kids are being cared for because people are giving of their time and they're serving right now. You're grateful for that. You even have compassion. You hear a sermon or you you watch the video or you read the brochure or you see something and and you think inside of yourself, I should do something there. I want to do something. I I want to be invested in that. But... On a weekly or even a monthly basis, there's no strategic, set, patterned way that you try to take your time and your talents and your resources and intersect them with the mission of God and connect them to the kingdom of God so that God's heart is reflective of your heart and you're actually participating in the mission. And consequently, you're sidelined. Because you've never done that, You're sitting on the sideline. And frankly, if every one of the members of a Harvest Baptist Church was like you, we'd never do anything for the kingdom of God. You say, Pastor Mark, I feel like you're getting after me. I am getting after you. I am. I want to do my best to get you off the sideline and in the game to help you understand what the heart of God is to help you understand what your heart should be. God asked Jonah some questions. Jonah, why are you so angry? Jonah, why are you angry for the gourd? Jonah, are are you okay to be angry? Jonah, are you concerned for that? Can I, I be concerned for that? Let me ask you some questions. Real life, why are you so apathetic? Why are you so noncommittal? Why are you so busy? I have to do all this so I can't be involved in anything? Why is it that every time you get presented with an opportunity to go get a little kid off the Christmas tree or to be involved some way or to serve some way, it sounds good to you, but you talk yourself out of it? Why do you do that? Why do you never take the plunge and never take the step to truly Make who you are, what you have at your disposal, in, in your mind, in your, in your serving capability, in your pocketbook, whatever it is, to actually connect to the mission of God. Here's, here's the beautiful thing, though. You don't have to be part of the problem. You can be part of the solution. <laughs> but you legitimately have opportunities to jump in and to serve and to give and play a part and to mentor or to teach or to take something off someone else's plate or to love your neighbor, to share the gospel. You have that at your disposal. If this is you and you are a, man, I come to church on Sunday mornings, maybe I come more than Sunday mornings, but I'm just kind of, I'm really not involved and I'm not invested and I'm not here in any way, shape, or form. I'm going to put you on notice right now. For the next two months, I'm coming after you. For the next two months, I'm coming after you. I'm going to do my dead level best to give you as many on-ramps as possible for you to connect, for you to do more, for you to give more, for you to be rich in good deeds and in your generosity. I'm going to do my best to get after you and to get you connected. And you need to be. You need to for you. This place needs you. We need you. The kingdom of God needs you. To do that and to understand that he, his heart, It's for this generation of people. And our heart as a church body needs to be for this generation of people. We need to understand, catch what the heart of God is. And this whole book 
is meant to drive towards this moment. This book is not just a big lesson on obedience because Jonah got swallowed by a fish because he disobeyed God. The book is meant to move towards this moment where you get what God's about, that you get his compassion and his mercy and his grace and his long-suffering and that he's slow to anger and he has great kindness and that he wants to redeem and restore people that need him. It's all meant to drive towards this. And the heart of God has not changed. This is not the heart of God in 8th century B.C. with Jonah, and now we live in some different dispensation, and that's not God anymore. No, it hasn't changed. What did Luke say? What did Jesus say in Luke? The Son of Man has come, why? To seek and to save that which was lost. Hey, you want to know why I'm here? You want to know what Christmas is all about? I'm here to get those lost people. It hasn't changed. This is still true for us today that God wants to redeem broken and lost people. God ended the book of Jonah on a question. So this morning, I will do the same. If God, in his mercy and grace and long-suffering and great kindness, is concerned about people who are lost and need him, here in our city and our surrounding cities, missionally in the world, if God is concerned about that, can we, can you, can I remain unconcerned?